this series that we are in is called Core Christianity, and we're really looking at the basic beliefs of the faith, what Christians have believed for thousands of years, what, what even unifies Christians across denominations and, and groups. We're looking at what does the Bible say? What is Christianity. And, and this is important if you are just exploring things. And we have people pretty much every single week that would say that they're not a Christian and they're exploring things. And, and we're glad that you are here and we want to help you know what is it that Christianity actually teaches and actually believes. It's better to learn that here than it is to just uh, see what Wikipedia has to say or to see what YouTube has to say. We, we want to help you know here is what Christianity actually is. And if you are a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian even for a long time, we are always in need of deepening in our faith and strengthening our faith and being able to actually understand how it connects not just to our minds, but how it connects to our lives, how it shapes our interactions and our relationships with one another. So that's why we're exploring this together this fall. We are looking at what does the Bible have to say? What are our core Beliefs And today, here's what we're looking at, something very fundamental. We are looking at who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's an important question because a lot of people like Jesus. If you talk to the average person on the street and say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Most people aren't, oh, I hate the guy. Most people won't say that. There's a lot of like of Jesus. And lots of people try to use Jesus for their ends. The Republican Party will try to use Jesus. The Democratic Party will try to use Jesus. Various candidates will use Jesus. I've seen pamphlets before on the vegetarian Jesus. I'm sure there's other people that would say the meat-eating Jesus. I mean, all sorts of people try to use Jesus for their cause or for their thing. He's a popular figure that people want to attach him to their beliefs and, and their ideologies. And so it's important to actually say, who is Jesus? Different religions have their conceptions of Jesus. And so we want to say, who is Jesus? Because the reality is, we can miss Jesus. We can miss who he is. He's the most influential person that has ever existed on the face of this earth. That's, that's a fact. That's not just a Christian point of view. He's the most influential person who's ever existed. And yet, it'd be easy to actually miss who he is. Since there are so many kind of competing voices or people that want to attach him to their thing. But if Christianity is about Jesus, hence the name Christ, if Christianity is about Jesus, if it's really all focused on him, then we want to get right. Who is Jesus? We want to get that piece right or everything else will be gotten wrong. So who is Jesus? And how does who he is as a person, how does who he is connect to our life? How does it shape how we interact in all the daily things that we do? So there's probably a lot that I could say about who Jesus is, but we're going to explore two fundamental concepts. And the first is this, that Jesus is human. Now, I don't know if you think about him like that. And don't kind of raise your hands or, or answer this out loud, but is it hard for you to think about Jesus as human is it hard for you to think about him as human? Is it easier to think of him more as kind of a superhero? You know, Batman, Superman, Jesus man. Is, that, is it kind of easier to think like that? That he's got, you know, all this power and, and that's more who he is? 
And there's a lot of aspects of what we could talk about around Jesus being human, but let's spend a little bit of time looking at a few things. The first thing is this. The earliest, one of the earliest heresies within the Christian church was something called docetism. And maybe you've heard of Gnosticism, which really was the, the child or grandchild of, of docetism or docetism, which means appeared, or it, it comes from the, the root words of appearance. It appeared to be. And what they said is Jesus was not human. He appeared to be human. He looked human. He sounded human, but he, he was not actually human. And this was something that the early church, as early as when the New Testament was being written, was combating this thing. Here's what John says in the book of 1 John. It says, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So it's very important, the early church would say, that if you get this wrong, if you get it wrong that Jesus actually came in the flesh... If you get it wrong that Jesus was human, that's Antichrist. It's so far from what Christianity is, it was a big concern. But what the Bible would teach us is this. Jesus wasn't faking it. He wasn't faking to be human. If if you remember from uh, middle school, he wasn't like the Greek gods that kind of sometimes came into the earth and appeared to be human and kind of looked human but wasn't actually human. That's not what the Bible presents to us of who Jesus is. He wasn't just a spirit that kind of tricked people into thinking he was human and the cross was this big facade. It wasn't like that. The Bible says, core to Christianity, core to Christianity, Jesus is human. How do we see that in the Bible? Well, the first is, like all humans, Jesus was born. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. And you know this if you've been in church for any time. After his mother had married, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together, meaning it was a virgin birth, that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, like all humans, Jesus was born. He had a physical birth. He had a mama. Jesus was born. And he was born of a virgin, so that's different from you and I, which enabled him to have a sinless existence. He was born of the Holy Spirit, And we looked at last week how all human beings have inherited sin, but Jesus, being born of the Holy Spirit and being born of a virgin, was able not to have this inherited sinful nature, but he was born. Like all human beings, he was born. And not just that he was born, but if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which by the way, let me tell you this, if you are someone who is exploring Christianity, A lot of people say, I want to explore Christianity. I'm going to start in Genesis. I'm just going to read the book, start to finish. And I always say, don't do that. That's okay. I'm not saying it's the worst idea. But most of the time when people do that, they stop a couple books in and go, I don't understand this. It's better to go, let me see who Jesus is. I really want to know who he is. So start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and explore the stories of Jesus' life written by his friends, eyewitnesses. And so as we go through the Bible seeing how is Jesus human, here's what we see. Jesus was born, but he also had all of the human experiences that you and I have. He had all the different human experiences. Jesus grew. The boy grew up, became strong, filled with wisdom. So Jesus didn't come out of the womb on Christmas Day 
preaching. He didn't come out just all of a sudden say, hey, and now let me tell you about some things. In the Old Testament, it says this. And he was a baby. That's why I don't like the song uh, Away in a Manger. And I'm sorry, you know, to crush your Christmas spirit. But I don't, it says, you know, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Well, that's not true. He was a human. He was crying. He, he, and he grew up. He grew in wisdom. He grew in strength. He didn't just start off with a beard and, you know, a robe. He, he started as a baby. He not only grew, but he had a body that, like ours, and I, I won't read all the surrounding things. I just want to highlight some of this. But he had a body that got worn out, like your body. Jesus had a physical body that would get worn out on a journey. He would say, I'm thirsty. He experienced thirst. Jesus, when he was in, and this could happen, I could show you many scriptures around this, but he got hungry. This is probably the most, this is the the biggest understatement of all time. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's like, well, yes, I would think so, you know. I would say, after preaching, you know, a a, a very short sermon, I'm hungry, you know. I don't know if you're laughing because I'm hungry or because the short sermon part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now my soul is troubled. He felt emotions. Now my soul is troubled. Jesus felt emotional turmoil like, like you and I feel. Jesus was grieved at various points in his life. I am deeply grieved. He felt deep emotion. He wasn't some kind of robotic being that was like, yeah, I'm just pretending on this human stuff. He, he felt deeply grieved and deeply troubled, and he felt amazement. He's talking to someone about their faith, and he says, I'm amazed. I haven't seen any faith like this in all of Israel. He, he felt the emotion of amazement. He wept, cried. This is the shortest verse in the Bible, by the way, a little Bible trivia for you. So if you're like, I need to memorize the Bible. There you go. There's one verse. Check. Jesus wept. He wept. And by the way, wept isn't like a man tear that comes out at like, you know, during Top Gun or something when you're like, oh, this is... It's like, wept is like, I'm, I'm, I've got snot and like, I'm, I'm weeping. He wept. He, he had a job like you and I. They say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? He had a job such that he was identified with the job. He had lived a human life. He, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. In Hebrews, it says, although he was the son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, it doesn't mean that he was disobedient and he learned to become obedient, but it means that as a perfect human, sinlessly, he grew in obedience, just like you and I do, where we can do small things of obedience that lead to larger things of obedience that lead to larger things of obedience. Jesus grew and learned obedience. He also was tempted. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now, was Jesus tempted to spend too much time on his phone? No, because they didn't have a phone. But he was tempted in every way, which means the roots, the seeds of the same things that we are tempted with, he was tempted with. He was tempted in every way as we are. Yet without sin, kind of talked about how he didn't have a sinful nature through the virgin birth and the the miracle of being conceived by the Holy Spirit, but also he lived a sinless life. 
Now, you might think, well, how can he actually be human if he if isn't, being, isn't being a sinner core to what it means to be a human? And I would say, kind of, but that's not how we were originally designed to be. Jesus is the true human, the perfect human, before the humanity fell. And so it actually is the most human thing to do to live a life that is not sinful, which is why as we follow Jesus, we are led into true humanity to be actually your authentic self. And some people might think, well, if Jesus didn't sin, was it real temptation? Some people ask, well, could he even sin because he was God? He was, could it, is it impossible to sin? But here's, here's an interesting thing to think about. Who is the one that has experienced temptation more? The one that sins or the one that doesn't sin? I think about it this way. Who's the person that has experienced the full weight of a marathon? The person that runs the marathon and finishes it? Or the person that goes, oh, never mind. Not that person. They haven't actually felt the weight of a marathon, the pressure of a marathon, the difficulty of a marathon. The, more, the closer you give up, the less you've actually felt the pressure. Jesus lived a sinless life which means he felt the full weight of temptation. And because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, it means he was actually tempted more than you and I have ever been. Because we give in to temptation. We have felt some temptation and resisted. Other times in our life we have felt temptation, and the greater it grew, the greater it grew, we gave up. But imagine if you felt all of the weight of temptation and yet remained faithful. Jesus was tempted in every, every way as we are, and yet without sin, which means he felt the full weight of temptation. He was tempted, and he also just experienced all the different human experiences that we have. It says, this is a similar verse to the one we just read, but it says, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Just think about this first part. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. And there's so many parts of the Bible that I could help you see this and, and explore this together. Once I was going to do a study through the Gospels where I wanted to mark out every single time that Jesus suffered in any way, whether that was emotional suffering or spiritual suffering or mental suffering or relational suffering, and I started doing it, and then it was like, this is going to take me forever. Because there is so many experiences that he had of suffering. Betrayal, physical suffering, losing loved ones like many of us have. Friends misunderstanding, family drama, family misunderstanding. And, and not just the, the difficulty, he, he was made like us and other. He had friends. He went to parties. He went to church. I don't know if he had a pet, but... We'll say he had a pet. I mean, probably not. Maybe a goat that they then sacrificed. So maybe it's a little different than you. But he lived a normal human experience, the highs and the lows of humanity. He, he was made like us in every way. And he had the final human experience that all of us will have. He died. He breathed his last. And even the way that it says that isn't to just say, his spirit evaporated or some sort of mystical thing, but he breathed his last. His lungs stopped pumping oxygen. His heart stopped pumping blood. He breathed 
his last. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but today, Jesus is still human. It's not that he was human. Today, right now, Jesus is still human. Think about at the resurrection, Jesus goes to them. This is after the resurrection, and he says, look at my hands and my feet. That is, I myself, touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. This is after the resurrection. He says, look, I'm not a spirit. I am a human being. I've got flesh, and I've got bones. And then right after this, to prove it, he says, give me something to eat. And they give him a piece of fish, which I'd be like, something else. I want something else. I'm like, why is that what you gave me, you know? Give me something to eat. It says they gave him broiled fish. And I'm like, how old is this, you know? It's been sitting around waiting. But he ate. He's got flesh and bones, hands and feet. He still has the scars. He's got a body. He still is human. Jesus is human. That's the first thing that we need to understand. If you want to know who Jesus is, you need to understand he is a human being, human being. And let's explore then what that actually means for us. Why does the humanity of Jesus matter? Why is that so important? Why does it matter that Jesus was human? There's a few things I want to help you see here. The first is that we could not be saved if Jesus wasn't human. We couldn't be saved. If Jesus wasn't human, you and I could not be saved. We couldn't have been saved if Jesus was only God which we'll get to in a moment. Jesus had to be human because he had to be our representative. We looked at this verse last week where it talks about the sinful nature of Adam coming to us, being passed down to us. For just as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also, now about Jesus, through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus had to be our representative where he lived perfectly obedient and that is able to be transferred to us through his record. He had to be our representative, just as Adam was our representative, and thus we share an inherited guilt. He had to be human in order to save us in this way, but also had to be human in order to be our substitute for sin, for the payment of sin. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Jesus had to share in flesh and blood so that his death would be able to break the power of death. Therefore, he had, we already read this part, therefore he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. That's a sacrifice for sin. We looked at last week. We're all sinners and the wages of sin is death, meaning the penalty, the punishment for sin is death. Jesus had to be human in order to pay that penalty. He had to actually be a human since humans have to pay the penalty of sin. And the Bible says that he is the mediator for there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. If you think about mediation, there's usually two different parties. There might be multiple, but just to simplify, there's two different parties. And they are at odds. In this, it is us and God because of sin that has separated us from God. And there has to be a mediator that comes in and brings them together, ideally. You can think about this 
from a, a relational standpoint, if you've ever had conflict and someone stepped in to help mediate the situation, you can think about it legally where someone steps in to try to resolve things. Jesus is the one mediator between God and mankind, but he's able to fulfill that role as a human and as being God also, but he is able to fulfill the role of the in-between because he is both, but he had to be human to be able to mediate between us and God. Now, all of these things are saying that we couldn't be saved unless Jesus was human. He had to be one of us. There's an old song that, what if God was one of us? And it has this like imaginary, oh, wouldn't it be great if God was? And the Bible says, God was one of us. God is one of us. You're ripping me off. That's what the Bible says. That's plagiarism. God says, I am one of you. You know, anytime there's a politician or someone that's trying to get you on their side, they will try to appeal to you to be, I'm one of you. And they're not, but they will say that, right? I'm, I grew up in the same town as you did. I, my dad was a coal miner. My grandpa, you know, they'll go really far back if they have to. My great, great, great grandpa grew up in Indiana. We're the same, you know. They'll say whatever they can, right? But they want to say, I'm one of you, so therefore what? I'm for you. I understand you. I get your concerns. I can represent you. I'll act in your place as your representative to others. The Bible is saying Jesus is that in the perfect way. That Jesus is human. I am with you. I am for you. You couldn't be saved unless you had me as human representing you in your place as your substitute, mediating so that's the first piece of why the humanity of Jesus matters is because we couldn't be saved without him. But also because as a human, Jesus is our example. Now, there's all sorts of different verses I could give you on this, both that Jesus himself says and the Bible says in other places. But I just want to give you one. It says, the one who says he remains in him. That's saying, if you're a Christian and you say, I'm, part, I'm with Jesus, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. First Peter says that he left us an example that we would follow as we are suffering. And Jesus, when he washes the disciples' feet, says, I'm leaving you an example that you would also do this to one another. It's all throughout the Bible that one of the important reasons to know that Jesus is human is because it means he can be our perfect example. What area in your life is hard or do you seek or want wisdom in? There's a lot of different areas where do you want to be better or do better? And generally speaking, if there's an area where you particularly feel a pain point, what do we do? We look for an example. It might be someone on social media where we say, how do they parent? It might be someone where we say, what, what, how, did they, how did they lose that weight? Or how did they get fit? Or how, how was their diet like that? We look at success stories of an example. It might be financially that you seek to follow particular people that have success financially and you say okay what did they do what do they say to do how did they do it and if they didn't do it we wouldn't trust them you wouldn't trust a very very large overweight person to tell you how to get fit you wouldn't trust someone that was had never had a job to tell you how to be employed you wouldn't trust someone who was poor to tell you how to gain wealth right we look for particularly the people that have gone through something and come out on the other side where we say, okay, there's an example. They can show me the way. We look for that in all sorts of areas of our life. 
The Bible says that Jesus is the perfect example that can show you how to walk. He can show you how to live this life. And maybe much of our life or certain areas of our life is not how we want it to be or what we would want, hope it could be because we're following other examples. Jesus is saying, I want to show you how to walk. I want to show you what marriage looks like, what parenting looks like. I want to show you what friendship looks like. I want to show you what your job could look like. I want to show you what leadership could look like. I want to show you what emotional health and strength could look like. I want to show you what perseverance in the midst of difficulty could look like. I want to show you what suffering could look like. I want to show you how to walk. But if we're following other examples and other voices and other people, Maybe our life doesn't look like the kind of walk we would want it to be because our example is not what it should be. Jesus says, I want to help you see how to walk. So are you bringing the areas in your life where you want wisdom or you want growth? or you Are you bringing those to Jesus and saying, okay, how did Jesus do this? I know it's kind of passe and some of you didn't even grow up during this time, but that's why the old question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? actually has some value and benefit to it. Say, what would Jesus do? I want to be led and walk in his example. What if you brought your life and your areas where you're seeking wisdom to him? And I'm not saying you should never look at other people's voices, and other, but you should, we should come to Jesus and say, what do you say? How did you handle this? How did you walk? He will help. He will speak. He will lead. He's gone through it, and he can show you the path to live the perfectly human life. And it's not just that he's our example, but we know, and I showed you this first before, but that he sympathizes with our life. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Saying, listen, because Jesus went through the human experience, because of that, when he looks at your weaknesses, he isn't, oh, just get it together already. He's not like that. It says he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he lived it. He knows it. And so instead of him disdaining us for our weaknesses, instead of him being bothered by our weaknesses, he actually says, come bring them to me so I can give you mercy and grace to help you. I feel for you, it says. I, I sympathize with you. He knows what it's like, and so he feels for you. In our trials, in the difficulty that we face, what do you want? One of the things we want is someone that's been through it already. That's generally one of the things that we want, right? We want someone who has gone through the trials that we have faced so that we can have some compassion, some comfort. And to the degree that someone's been through it is often to the degree that it's helpful. I don't know if you've ever gone through some. You've heard someone kind of make a comparison like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. And you're like, you don't get it. Sometimes when people that don't have kids... They're, you're, you're sharing, oh, it's really hard, my kids. And like, I know, with my dog, it's really hard. And you're like, uh, it's not really the same. Yeah, my dog keeps me up at night. Yeah, they, they're barking all night. It's really hard. You're like, well, okay. 
you could take your dog to the pound. You know, there's a lot of fixes for that. <laughs> you know what Jesus did with his pet? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fixes. <clears throat> or, <laughs> but what you want is someone that has gone, truly gone through what you've gone through, right? That's why soldiers often bond together because they've been through a traumatic experience. They know each other gets it. That's why there's ministries. I just recommended this to someone recently. There's a ministry called Grief Share, which is for people that are grieving and going through difficulty and it, that puts you together with people that are grieving also. You want someone who has gone through truly what you've gone through. You want someone, and I'm not saying that other people aren't helpful, and obviously it would be stupid to be like, you have to check all these boxes before you can bring me any comfort. You have to check all these boxes before you can offer any truth. Or that, that would be arrogant and foolish, okay? So don't do that. But it is helpful to have someone that's actually gone through the things that we've gone through. And what we know is if someone's gone through that, generally speaking, they're probably going to have a lot of compassion for us. They're probably going to have a lot of sympathy for us. Because they've also experienced it. Experienced the death of a loved one? Jesus says, I know what that's like. You've experienced being misunderstood? Jesus says, yeah, I know, it's really hard. You've experienced physical pain? Jesus says, yeah, I, I get that. I feel sympathy for you. He doesn't just say, I don't know what that's like. Hope you get over it. He doesn't approach us in that way. And here's how Jesus' sympathy for us is even better. When other people have sympathy for you, it's because they maybe went through a common experience. But here's what maybe will blow your mind. They didn't choose that common experience. It's an accident that they had it. You have a physical disability, they had one. But they didn't choose that. You lost a loved one, they lost a loved one. But they didn't choose that. Jesus willingly chose to become human, to suffer all the human experiences that we do. He chose to be able to enter into a broken world so he could empathize and sympathize with you. He said, I will freely take all that on so that I get what they're going through. Jesus sympathizes with you. So what are you facing in your life? You know what this means? It means he sees the difficulty. He can't sympathize with you if he doesn't see you. He sees the difficulty that you're going through. And he cares. He cares. He isn't just this distant God far away. He cares for you. He knows the difficulty you're going through, and he cares for the difficulty that you face. He knows it's hard, and he can help you. Do you believe that? So the humanity of Jesus matters because it means that we can be saved. It means that he can help us in the difficulty that we face. It means that he wants to help us in the difficulty that we face. It's not a bother to him. He wants to help us. So are you bringing your cares to him boldly. The humanity of Jesus matters. But it's not only, of course, that Jesus is human, but we also know that Jesus is God. And I don't know, I, I, we, I thought about doing a poll of like, what, is it easier to think about Jesus as human or is it easier to think about Jesus as God? Probably depending on your background, depending on your faith tradition, depending on all sorts of things, one of those might be easier than the other. Sometimes it's hard for us to think about Jesus as God. So for some of you, maybe you get the human part. It's hard for you to think about him as God. 
Maybe because you're more skeptical, you're not sure, is that just a later legend that developed? It could be all sorts of things. But Christianity teaches the doctrine of the incarnation, which think about the word carn, like carne, carne asada. Mm. So it's to say that he came in the flesh, incarnation. He came in the flesh. But God coming in the flesh is what it means. So Jesus is God come in the flesh. Let me show you a few different ways. There's really two different categories I want to show you. One is that the Bible says this, but the other is that the Bible shows this. First, on the says, simply, it's in his name. It says that they were to name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. If your name is God is with us, well, that's kind of obvious who you are. God is with us is his name. It's in his very name. Also, it will say things directly like this. In the beginning was the word, talking about Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word for God is theos, which is the word translated as God. Most commonly, it is attributed to God the Father, but it is often also used of God the Son saying he was with Theos, and the word was Theos, was God. Also, another one, no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So this word, this very direct, but this word that's often used for the Father is also attributed to Jesus. And then there's another word that is most commonly attributed to Jesus, and that is the word Lord. Now, when we think about the word Lord, you might think that that is kind of an honorific title that can be given to people, and that's true. That's one of the usages of it. You can say, like, oh, my Lord, or, you know, that if you're talking like a weird British person or something, or you could say uh, Lord Vader, you know, if you're talking, showing respect to the dark side or whatever, right? There's, there's an honorific title that you can use. But Lord is also used of Jesus. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the word Yahweh, which is the personal name for God, sometimes in the Bible, in some translations, it's translated as Jehovah. But the word for Yahweh was translated as the word Lord in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which many people used because Greek was the common language at the time. It was like many people were bilingual, trilingual. I know that's hard for us Americans to understand, but that's how many people were in the ancient world, okay? So when people would hear the word Lord, especially if it was applied to someone in some of these contexts, they would know, especially if you were a Jew, the Old Testament uses that word for God. So they wouldn't be confused just thinking they were saying sir or something like that because it was often, thousands and thousands of times, attributed to Yahweh. It was the word used to translate Yahweh. So Oftentimes, you'll hear things like this. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. That's not just like Lord Vader. You know, it's the Lord. This is him. And then let me show you this passage. This is very interesting. This is Isaiah chapter 40, which if you have time, go read the whole thing. It's a great chapter about the power and the uniqueness of God and how there is no one like God. It's saying there's no one like him. He's amazing. And it's a whole chapter, chapter 40 and 41, both. But it's talking about how there's no one like God. Here's what it says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and denounce to her that the time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from the Lord, that's Yahweh, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh, in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord, okay? God is unique. The Lord, Yahweh, that's that word, okay? He is amazing. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Now, if you're super familiar with the New Testament, you'll know what this sounds like, which is John the Baptist. Mark 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. That's talking about John the Baptist. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. It's talking about Jesus now. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Isaiah says there's this unique, no one's like him, God, prepare the way of Yahweh. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written, someone is coming, a voice crying, and it will attribute this to John the Baptist, saying, prepare the way for Yahweh. And it's Jesus. So it can be easy sometimes to miss this. The Bible doesn't work most of the time sort of like how our American mind works, where it just says, okay, is Jesus, you know, Google, is Jesus God? And there's like an essay on, yes, Jesus is God. It, it works like this, where you have to have an understanding of look at what the Old Testament says about God and look at what this says, where it tells us this is the Lord. Yahweh has come. So in his name and his birth, in attributing the name or the, the, the word theos and Lord, and then Jesus says many things himself that I can't go into all of them, but all of these I am statements where he says who he is, where he says before Abraham was, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, which is claiming to be God. All of these different things happen with Jesus. And then other places in the New Testament will just say things like this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. Or in Colossians says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So it'll give you all of these different things. There's really no mistake about it. But in case you still are curious, did this just develop? Did people add this later? Uh, there's an old, this is an older book, but an old Yale uh, professor and historian. His name is Yaroslav Pelikan. We've got a lot of babies that are about to be born. I think that's a great one. First and middle name, Yaroslav Pelikan Smith. Uh, from Yale, he says this, the oldest surviving sermon of the Christian church after the New Testament, so the oldest document that we have, the first sermon ever preached, says, brethren, we ought so to think of Jesus Christ as of God, as the judge of living and dead, and we ought not to belittle our salvation, for when we belittle him, we expect also to receive little. Also, the oldest non-Christian source the oldest surviving pagan report about the church described, this is from a Roman document, described Christians as gathering before sunrise and singing a hymn to Christ as to a God. This is what was confessed from the very beginning, that Jesus is God. So this is where it says Jesus is God. It, we also, it also shows that Jesus is God, where you see different miracles, where it says, why are, this is the, the, when Jesus calms the storm at the sea. He says, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. He shows his power as God while he's on earth. And 
he, for, he does things that only God does, like forgive sin. I won't read this whole thing, but Jesus forgives someone's sin, not against him, but against others. And they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? If you sin against me and I forgive you, you're not going to call me God. But if someone over here sins against you and I say, I forgive you, you're going to go, what? You, they've sinned against me. But if all sin is against God, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus forgives sins. He also receives worship. Then he said to Thomas, this is after the resurrection, put your finger here, look at my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, don't be faithless, but believe. And after Thomas does that, Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 don't call me God. He says, you have seen and now believe. Jesus shows that he's God. The Bible says that he's God, and the Bible shows that he is God. Now listen, this is important because anything different from this is not Christianity. Anything different from this is not Christianity. Anything that would teach something different is not Christian. So if there's some religious group or religious sect that says, we are Christians, but they don't have this belief of who Jesus is, they're not Christians. Because you can't say, I believe in Jesus. You have to say this, what Jesus? Do you know that the Bible itself actually says that there are false Jesuses? Now, we've seen that in multiplicity now in the thousands of years since that was written. This is the Jesus that we believe in, that Christians believe in. You can't just say, I, kind of, I believe in a Jesus like this, or I believe in a Jesus like that. I believe in a Jesus that was a great teacher, but he's not God. I believe in a Jesus that was born and sort of achieved God's status, but not really God. That's not the God that the Bible teaches. This is why C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying here, as he's talking about Jesus being God, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Why, Lewis? A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. If, if you walked around saying, I forgive your sin, and it wasn't against me, and look at what I, and I, I am God, and if you walk around saying those things, you're not a great moral teacher. You're a charlatan. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. He's great. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It's very important. We have to take Jesus at his own word. We have to take Jesus as the way the Bible presents to him. Otherwise, it isn't Christianity. It's us inventing our own religion. Jesus is God. And it can be hard to think through how can someone be man and God? How does that fit together? That can be hard to think about. And like many things in the Bible, there's great mystery. 
the Trinity, God being three in one, and God being truly human and truly God in one person, but two natures, but not blended together and not split personalities. None of those things, but truly human, truly God, at the same time, in one person. That can be hard for us to wrap our mind around, but what we do is we come to the Bible and say it presents these truths. Jesus is God. And then the final question is, so why does the divinity of Jesus matter? Can't we just like him? Can't we say, I don't know, maybe he's God, maybe not. Can't we just like him and like his teaching and like that he says to love your neighbor, but not necessarily confess that he is God? And the Bible gives us a few different reasons why it's important to know the divinity of Jesus. The first is this. Just like with humanity, we couldn't be saved if he wasn't God, because the Bible consistently teaches this, salvation is from God, or salvation is from the Lord. Over and over again throughout the Bible, I'll just give you one verse. It says, Israel will be saved by the Lord, Yahweh, with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated for all eternity, prophesying that you will be saved by God. Over and over again, that's the call of the Bible, that salvation comes from the Lord. That is the Bible's view is that only God can save. All throughout the Bible, that's, that's the point. Only God can save. Humans try this and try that and try to have a great king and try to have a great judge and try to have a great prophet and try to be a great nation, and it doesn't work. Only God can save. That is the point throughout the Bible over and over and over again. And only God could actually bear the weight of the sin on the cross. It needed to be a human sacrifice. But only God could actually bear the full weight of all of humanity's sin, which is why it says in this, God raised him up about Jesus, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. It wasn't possible for death to win. Not because he was human, but it was not possible for death to win. He was God. It needed to be both God and man to fulfill this. This is important because it's not, the story of the Bible is not just that Jesus is the best man. It is, it is salvation, which is different from every other religion. It teaches not that we work our way to God, but that God came to us. That's salvation, that we cannot do it. And God had to save us. Salvation is the first part, but also revelation, meaning he shows us what God is like. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Oh, just that, Philip. Okay. Just show us the Father. Okay. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Which means, I, I love this verse, and the Bible says this in other places, but, but it means this. Do you want to know what God is like? It can be hard to think about God, right? You want to know what God is like? What does it mean that God is love? Look at Jesus. He reveals it. He shows in action, in flesh and bones, what it means that God loves. You want to know what it means that God is wise? Oh, we know, okay, God is wise. That, that's so big. What does it mean? But look at Jesus, who was perfectly wise in every situation, in every dealing with people, in every way he lived, and go, that's the wisdom of God. You want to know what it means that God is powerful? You can think about things. You can think about creation. But look at the life of Jesus that heals sickness, that calms storms, that makes the blind see, 
that feeds the 5,000 from nothing. You want to know what God is like. We look at Jesus and he reveals him to us. We can see. If you want to know God, it can be such a hard concept. But when we look at Jesus, we go, ah, I can know him. I see what he's like. I see what his love is like. I see how he treats sinners. I see how he treats sufferers. I know what God is like. And then the final piece of why that divinity matters is because it shows a God unique among the gods who is a servant God. In Philippians 2, and the whole passage is great, but he's trying to, Paul's trying to encourage the church to be humble and to serve one another. And so he says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, which is to say, he's trying to encourage people to be humble and to serve one another. He says, God, Jesus was with God. He had everything, all the rights, all the privileges, all the benefits, nothing going wrong, no human flesh, no tiredness, no hungriness, no hangriness, none of it. And he, he emptied himself of that privilege and that status to serve us, to be with us, to help us. That's a selflessness that gave up everything for us. Isn't it hard to give up if you've got some kind of status or privilege or benefit? It can be hard for us to give up like the last cookie or something, right? It can be hard for us if there's you know, you're choosing at an Airbnb between the nice bed or, oh, I got to share that room. It can be hard to like, uh, it's hard to like even do that, right? It says Jesus gave up everything, perfection, to enter into the broken world that we have. He gave up the best status, perfect relationship, uninhibited, per- everything, and emptied to serve us. That's great humility. That's great service. Which, if you believe that, you know what you will also believe? If God would give up everything for me, he's for me. If God is that much, if Jesus is that much of a servant, then there's things I want in my life, there's things I'm asking for in my life, and I don't have them, but it can't mean that he isn't someone that would serve me or bless me or love me. There must be something else going on. Because he's already demonstrated he's willing to lose everything for me. If you see that Jesus is God, you see so many different angles of who he is that matter, which, which leads you to a place where you can't just casually treat him. Jesus is human, which helps us. Jesus is God means you can't tra- casually treat him. We must fall down and worship him. So if you are a Christian or if you're exploring the most essential thing that we can know is who is Jesus. That, that's got to be the place that we say, man, I, if we get that wrong, we get it all wrong. Who is Jesus? We don't want to get that wrong. And there's a lot more that I could tell you about who Jesus is. And, but this helps us see someone like no other. Someone that is God come to us and God one of us. The great, this is the greatest miracle in the Bible. God becoming man. And we're going to take communion in just a moment. Communion is a time for Christians. If you are a Christian and didn't grab one of those little cups on the way in, be sure to grab one of those. 
And part of why we do this every week is because it really pulls these things together. You want to know who God is? With communion, it shows us the incarnation, that Jesus is human. He had a real physical body, real physical blood. The incarnation, God became human. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He wasn't superhuman. We remember that he did that for us in our place as a substitute. God became man in our place for our sin. He died on the cross for you and me because we are all sinners by nature and choice. We reject God. We turn away from this great, amazing God who emptied himself for us and loves us and comes to us and reveals himself to us and says, Here's, uh, here am I. And, and we say, I've got other things to do. And we remember that he substituted himself for our sin in our place on the cross so that we could be forgiven, that we could be cleansed. And we remember the resurrection when we take communion also because we are remembering he's alive now. It's not just he was dead and that was nice. Remember, he's alive. And so we are remembering until he comes again what he did for us. We remember God revealed in Jesus. So as you take communion, I'd encourage you to confess your sins. Maybe, maybe there's some things that the Holy Spirit sparked in you as we were going through this. Maybe there's ways that you have just kind of ignored Jesus' sympathy for you or his care for you or ways that you could engage with him as an example or, and, and you just kind of are living your own thing. Confess. Or maybe it's you haven't treated him as God. Confess and receive his forgiveness. Receive his care. And ask him. Bring your heart to him. Do exactly what some of these verses have said. Ask him for his help. Ask, ask him for boldly come before the throne of grace. Imagine what would happen in our life if we knew this Jesus. Fully human. Fully God. That's the Jesus we want you to know. That's the Jesus I want to know. Let's pray. I'll be in the back also when we're, we're done and we'd be happy to pray for anyone. We're going to take communion when you're ready and, and then respond in a few songs. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us in sending us Jesus. Thank you that you would pour out yourself for us, that you would come to this earth, Jesus, and live the life of a human being. We thank you. I pray that we would know you as our example, that we would know you as our sympathetic high priest, and that we would know you as our God and Lord and King. And let us imitate you and who you are to one another. And let us reflect you to the world around us. And let us live in constant worship of who you are. In your name, Jesus. Amen.